All right, we will be in Matthew chapter 5 this morning, talking about the upside down kingdom. That'll make more sense as we go through this, hopefully. Um, today we're beginning um, what's called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It starts in chapter 5 and continues through chapter 7, and we will not be covering all of that, obviously, today. Um, chapter 5 starts out by telling us that Jesus, seeing the crowds, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. Can you imagine that? And then chapter 7 ends with, with these words, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You know, you think about these people that they try to find answers for life and they'll climb a mountain to go find some, you know, old guru with a long beard or something to tell them all the answers they're looking for. That's, that's got to imagine that kind of a thing from a movie or something. But, but this is the God of the universe coming down to us, sitting down among us and teaching us. I mean, what a privilege it is to be able to, to hear this. You can almost hear God's voice like they heard during the transfiguration. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So it's an amazing section of scripture, and we're really privileged to have access to it. Um, the section that we're going to be looking at this morning is, is referred to as the Beatitudes. They're made up of eight declarations made by Jesus. Um, people often think that they're called the Beatitudes because they describe the attitudes that we're supposed to exemplify, you know, the be attitudes, be like this, don't be like that. That's not why they call them that. It's actually just the Latin word that translates blessed are is where they get the, the phrase Beatitudes. So what we're going to see is Jesus repeating the phrase, blessed are those, about eight different times in this section. And so we'll read through, starting in verse 1 of Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely uh, against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So it might be good to start out by answering the question, what does it mean to be blessed? We hear people who aren't Christians uh, use this word to describe their lives very often. If you ever watch an award show, which I know nobody watches those anymore, but it used to be the movie stars or the rock stars would get up there and talk about how blessed they were. You know, sometimes they even say something about God and you, and you would look at their lives and think, yeah, that, that looks right. That looks like blessing. We often associate this word with happiness, with prosperity, with good fortune, these kinds of things. We normally wouldn't say someone's life was blessed if they were poor, meek, full of mourning, uh, persecuted, reviled, and had all kinds of evil things spoken against them. That, that, that is not, I wouldn't think, man, I wish my life was like theirs. They just are so blessed. That wouldn't pop into my head. That's, that's not the way we would define a happy existence. If we were to write a list like this of what it looks like to be blessed, I think we would come up with something different than what Jesus writes here. It would probably say something like, blessed are the wealthy, for they have nice cars 
and houses and all the stuff they want, everything they need, and their lives are full of ease. Blessed are the wise and capable, for they know how to get things done. They, they know how to navigate through life. Blessed are the beautiful and the popular, because they're beautiful and popular. I mean, you don't even have to say anything more than that. Just It's clear. Blessed are the powerful, for they control their own destiny, and they, and they get to do whatever they want. Blessed are the healthy, for they have no pain and no problems. That, that kind of a list makes sense to us. We get that. But Jesus has taken our understanding of blessing, what it means, and he's kind of just turned it completely upside down, turned it on its head. He, he's saying something that just doesn't make any sense. One commentator called this narrow gate theology. <laughs> like only some people are going to get this, basically. You know, you, Jesus is basically saying, you think being rich makes you blessed? No, being poor does. Do you think being powerful brings blessing? Wrong again. Being meek does. So the question is, how does that work? What kind of blessing is being talked about here? Um, blessing, you know, again, when we think about it, we, we have to kind of think about how the Bible describes blessing. And, and here it's really talking about divine acceptance, divine approval, his favor, the idea that God is pleased with you. I think about that. That's what blessing is. When we say, you know what? Oh, you know, God, when even my prayers this morning, I was asking God to bless these people and bless those people. And that's what I mean is I want him to, to smile upon them, to, to give them his approval, to give them his favor. It's really about having right standing with our creator. That's what it means to be blessed. Recipients of God's grace and God's favor experience this. And it's more than just a feeling or a set of circumstances or an emotion. It's really an entire state of existence for those who are in Christ. We are blessed by God. It's not just who we are. I mean, it's, I mean it is actually who we are. It's not just what we experience. So, so this blessing um, that talks about having right standing with God, that idea, it's something we enjoy right now, but it's, it's really more about this future blessing that we're going to enjoy in the kingdom of heaven, this fullness of that blessing that we get to experience later down the road. And so the Beatitudes are going to kind of be somewhat here and now and somewhat future. This kind of blessing puts all those other things we were talking about to shame. When you, when you compare those two, when you contrast the two, those things are all fleeting. They could disappear in an instant. Wealth can be taken away like that. Beauty can be taken away. All those things can go away in an instant. We, we see that happen right now. If you invested in crypto, sorry. You know, it's just gone all of a sudden, overnight, gone. How does that work? But the blessings that Jesus proclaims here are permanent and eternal. By proclaiming these Beatitudes, Jesus is telling us about a time where the tables are going to be turned and the roles will be reversed. The winners and the losers of this world are going to change places. It's kind of weird to think about. Jared Wilson refers to it as good, note, good news for those on the bottom. <laughs> I read that and I'm like, yeah, cool. I like that. And then he points out kind of in real terms what's being talked about here. The spiritually impoverished, the emotionally devastated, the psychologically weak, the culturally oppressed, the physically abused, and the personally accused. These are the, the, the people that he's pronouncing blessing over. And that's really good news for anyone who's experienced any of these things. Now, the way we read the Beatitudes and the way we understand these statements matters a lot because the way we, we approach these is going to change the, completely what we do with them. So when you look at this list, Craig was telling me he was reading through it and he's like, I'm not sure what to do with this. When you look at this list, do you see announcements or instructions? Very different thing. 
One is gospel, and the other is law. Reading this as law would mean that you see this as ways to get to heaven, to please God maybe, or ways to be successful in life. So Jesus would be saying like, oh, do you want to be blessed? Learn to be meek. Be merciful. Be pure in heart. Then God will give you the blessings and the success that you're looking for. See, we try to turn it into a formula of some kind. But Jesus isn't giving us a formula for success here. This is not a to-do list. These aren't action points to follow so that you can, you know, get the things you want, achieve something. And I'm kind of glad that this isn't a list of instructions on how to get to heaven. Because as I read through this, I pretty quickly realize, uh-oh, it's like, oh, I can't do most of this stuff. You know, I mean, really, if you, okay, you want to get to heaven, just, just be, just hunger and thirst for righteousness, and then you'll get there. Have a pure heart. Be merciful to everyone. And then you can, you can climb that hill. It's like, that's bad news for me. That leaves me out. This list becomes the opposite of blessing if we, if we read it as law. But if we read it as gospel, as, as announcements, this is great news. So when you think about what Jesus was just talking about in chapter 4, um, right before the Sermon on the Mount, he was proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he was doing there. And now in these verses, he's proclaiming what his kingdom people will be like because of his work of redemption. It's important that we understand that. His work, not our work. This is what kingdom people, this is what my people will be like. This is what they will look like. These are announcements. It's what born-again people are supposed to be like now that, even though we don't always succeed, but, but what we're supposed to be like now that we're born again, now that we've, we've been transformed. But more importantly, it's what we're going to be like in eternity, <laughs> completely. Right now, I wish that this described me all the time. It describes me some of the time. But in eternity, this is who we will be. And that's exciting to me. Every once in a while, we get kind of a chance to reflect God's kingdom to the people around us. You know, you just get this moment where you get a glimpse of it. You see a Christian being meek when they, when they have every right to maybe not be meek. Or you see somebody extending mercy when, when maybe that doesn't make sense. And it's kind of like just that sunshine breaking through the dark clouds. All of a sudden, you just get a glimpse of the kingdom come. Yeah. But I want to make sure we understand this. We are only this way because Jesus makes us this way. We can't produce these things apart from him. So if, if, if at any point you, you kind of have that idea of like, hey, check out my meekness, you know? <laughs> awesome, right? And you think that's cool. My humility is even more impressive, right? You know? And don't even get me started on my pure heart. It's, I mean, if you start to do this, you've misunderstood these things. We don't get a boast about any of this. All glory goes to him. Now, the first beatitude is, is probably the most important one. It's like that first domino. The rest of them kind of fall, you know, after this one. It's really the, the first step in somebody coming to faith, the first stepping stone, if you will. And it's also the key to our continual reliance on Jesus, our daily reliance on him. I would argue if, if this one's not true of you, then the rest of them aren't going to be true of you. In fact, they probably won't even make sense at all. So the first beatitude is, blessed are the poor in spirit. This is talking about being spiritually bankrupt. Those who realize they have nothing in their account at all. <laughs> and this is essential, it's critical. Those who are not poor in spirit have no need of God. They have no reason to come to him. Imagine all the religious leaders that may have been gathered around while Jesus was speaking that day. 
Were they poor in spirit? No, they thought they were rich in spirit. They believed that they had earned God's blessing because of their stellar works and their you know, incredible devotion to God, their life of piety, all these things. They were rich in spirit. It kind of reminds me of Revelation 3, where we see that picture of Jesus standing outside of his church and knocking. We use this as an evangelistic verse. I don't know why. It's not what it's even talking about. It's a picture of Jesus' church and him standing outside going, any, any need for me in there? Uh, can I help a little? You know, do you need me? Oh, okay, I'll just, I'll just stay out here still. Remember his rebuke to these guys. Revelation 3.17, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. They weren't rich. They were poor. They just didn't realize it. None of us are rich in that way. We're all poor in spirit. Some of us just don't recognize it. The, the religious leaders of that day wouldn't have recognized it. What is your level of need when it comes to God? Are you doing just fine without him? Spiritually rich? Maybe you wouldn't consider yourself rich in spirit, but you don't see yourself as poor either. You know, you need a little help. Kind of middle class in spirit, I guess, if you will. I think that describes most people. They aren't desperate, but they kind of like to keep God on speed dial case there's an emergency, you know, they keep them close just in case, you know, anything they can't handle on their own, they might turn to God for. <laughs> That's not what this is talking about. Poor in spirit literally describes a desperate beggar who is just hoping that maybe, maybe a few crumbs will fall from the king's table for us. That's who I am. I have nothing in my account. I love the way the hymn writer puts it. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. I'm naked, so I come to thee for dress. I'm helpless, so I look to thee for grace. I'm foul, so to the fountain I fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's me. I don't have anything to offer. For those who understand their emptiness before God and look to him as their only remedy, the poor in spirit, he says to them, yours is the kingdom of heaven. Isn't that beautiful? You have nothing here, nothing to offer me. And you know what I'm going to give you? Everything, the whole kingdom. It's crazy. You don't just get the crumbs. You get him for eternity. You realize that? <laughs> wow. The next pronouncement naturally flows from this one, it, it follows kind of that idea of a person who is poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Now, we know that everyone in this world experiences times of grief and sadness. Everybody mourns, right? But not everyone who mourns is blessed in the way that Jesus is describing here. He's talking about people who are filled with grief, but grief over what? And I would say that the most important thing that, that is in mind here is grief and mourning over our sin, my sin, my personal sin, the way that I have fallen short, the way I've grieved God by my actions and my behavior, the way I've ignored him, the way I have treated his sacrifice for me, all of these things that I've just broken over my sin, mourning over it, 
Now, I, I believe that we also mourn over sin in general, the brokenness of this world, the things that we see going on around us. There's mourning for that as well, but, but it, I think it really centers around our personal sin. Sin is the, you know, the result of all the things we, we mourn over in the world, death, sickness, the lack of righteousness, the things that we see as far as people treating each other in, in an ugly way, the corruption, the greed, the injustice, the lies, all of these things are a result of sin. The disregard that uh, people have toward God and, and his gospel is something that we mourn over. I, I, you know, there's that, that story of Jesus when he goes to raise his friend Lazarus. And, and it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible, you know, because I cry all the time, but Jesus wept. I, I love this, this idea of this Jesus mourning death. And, and there, it's interesting when, you, when, you, when he says that he walked up to the grave right before he says, Lazarus, come out. There's, they translate it in different ways, and it talks about how he was groaning within himself. Some say that he was actually kind of, the, the word actually kind of means angry. And you, you get this picture, what was Jesus upset about here? What was going on? And I really believe it's this. He's looking at what sin has done. He's looking at his dead friend and going, that's because of sin. If you guys would have just gone with the plan that God had and not blown it and broken this world, none of this would happen. And so, so this is Jesus mourning over all of this. There's a very real sense that as Christians who are stuck in this world, we're going to mourn a lot. And I don't mean to sound depressing. I, mean, I just heard a guy named, I don't know if you know Paul David Tripp, but he, he kind of said he got to the point where he just realized as a pastor, he's going to be sad most of the time. And he's okay with it. He just knows it, you know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to see broken people doing stupid things. and It's just going to be a normal pattern of my life. But that's okay because this isn't it. So, yeah, are we going to have mourning here? Yes. But I love what it says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's an end to this mourning, isn't there? We will be comforted. And this is a right now. We experience God's peace and comfort through the hardest things, times that don't make any sense, and yet we feel that comfort. But it really is a comfort that is to come, that we really, um, you know, I'm banking on. So right now we can be comforted by his word, by his promises, and mostly by his presence, because he's given us the Holy Spirit, who is literally called the Comforter. I mean, you can't be more clear than that. Thank you, God, for giving us a Comforter. There's something about even that word. You know, I'm not even really like a guy that likes to snuggle in a Comforter, but the idea of just, you know, pulling your cold and you just pull up, a, it's, it's comforting even to hear that word. We have God's presence that we can wrap ourselves in when we need it, and he's made that readily available to us all the time. And he's also given us the church. You're never alone in this, Christian. Isn't that cool that he's given us him and he's given us each other? And sometimes having him as a comforter should be more important to us, but it's hard for us to see it sometimes or to feel it or to know it. But he's given us a tangible presence of his Holy Spirit within the church so that we can weep with each other. And we can, you know, even this morning, just to see the love being poured out in each other's lives over the things that are going on. We laugh with each other. We weep with each other. We carry each other's burdens. Praise God that we have this family, that he's given us that. So we're comforted greatly by all that he's given us, but mostly by the fact that he's coming back and that where we were going, where we are going, none of the things that we mourn about now will, will exist anymore. They'll all be gone. Isn't that cool? Gone. So blessed are those who mourn. And then he says, blessed are the meek. Um, this one always cracks me up. I just remember, it's like, well, good for them. You know, it's like, it's about time they got something. The meek. 
you know. It's a, <laughs> um, meek is somewhat of an, a misunderstood word. Um, some people think of it as weak, like you're a doormat just for everyone to walk on. And some people would say that, no, it's power under control like Jesus had. You know, he could have just wiped everybody out, but he, he, he chose to be meek. And, and sometimes it can be both of those things. But I think it's helpful when we think about what the opposite of a word is sometimes. And the opposite of meek is to be self-assertive. This idea that you, you push your way to the front. Um, you look out for number one. You get yours. And this is actually considered kind of virtuous today. I don't know what happened for this to become like, okay. But they, this is encouraged. This is behavior that's, that is, is encouraged now. More than any time that I can remember, we become kind of a me first society. It's gross. It's disgusting. This idea that I have my rights. I don't, you don't tell me what I can and can't do with this or with that. My rights. You know, this idea of, and again, it's, it's even that don't tread on me. You see it, you know, you see it on both sides of the aisle. This, this, this idea of, I don't know, it bugs me a lot. It's considered virtuous to think this way. It's considered the only path to self-actualization. Do you want to be happiness and find fulfillment? This is the way to do it. Me first, you get yours. That's ridiculous. It's completely the opposite of what Jesus said. And more importantly, what he modeled. The greatest among you shall be the servant. The first will be last. The one who finds his life will lose it. And the one who loses it for my sake will find it. That's the kingdom. That's, that's you know, that completely upside down and backwards from everything the world tells us. And yet Jesus said, no. This is how you're going to find true fulfillment, satisfaction, happiness, is, is by being willing to put yourself second. Are you okay with being second? Jesus was. I mean, I can say, yeah, I can say, yeah, but most of the time I don't act that way. I like being first. You know, I like getting my way. I like getting the things that I want. Jesus was willing to put himself second, and he's our example. You know, the people that are putting themselves first right now, they might get all this world has to offer, but we get all that the next one has to offer. And, and that's forever. It's a better deal. So it's interesting that in Luke's um, section where he talks about the Beatitudes, he ends that section with this to contrast it in Luke 6.24. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. It's the exact opposite of what we have to look forward to. So blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And then he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This one just gives me pause when I read it. It's like, ah, oh, I would like to tell you that this describes me to a T. But as I reflect on my daily life, I don't think I hunger and thirst for righteousness as much as I should. Now, don't get me wrong. I hunger and thirst for righteousness in your lives. You know, I want to see that for sure. And in the world, I definitely want to see that. You know, that, that's important to me. The truth is there was a time when I didn't care at all about righteousness. And now I'm grieved over my lack of it. And that's just evidence that Christ is doing something in me. But I'm not there yet. I'm not even close. And I want to be, I want to be much closer. Um, I hunger and thirst for righteousness in that sense. I want to be made right, completely, sinless. I can't wait for that day. I hate my sin, and I hate my failure, and I cannot wait for the day when my positional holiness and my practical holiness like meet up. It's coming one day, but for now, it's not that way. 
On that day, I will be rid of my wretched sin once and for all. But until that day, it's a struggle. Um, Part of that struggle is believing this worldly lie that the world has something to offer us that's better than what God has to offer us. There's a way to find some satisfaction out there. You just got to look harder. You know, and I'm dumb enough to do it. Okay, I'll try. I'll try again. That's what we do. It's like a dog chasing his tail that thinks somehow, eventually, maybe, maybe this time, it's like, you know, it's not going to, you're not getting there. Stop chasing after those things. There's nothing there for us. You know, it never satisfies, at least not for long. But we keep trying. We keep trying to satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with the wrong things. Only God can fix that hole in our soul. Only he can give us that living water that will finally quench us. So blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That sound good? A day is coming where that will be fully realized. It's true now, but it'll be fully true. Um, We're fully realized in in his kingdom. The next one is blessed are the merciful. Mercy is a beautiful thing. It's one of the things that everybody wants for themselves, but has a hard time giving to others. Um, But a person who recognizes that they are poor in spirit, that they're bankrupt with nothing to, to offer God, and a person who truly mourns over that condition and is humbled by it, When that person receives mercy and forgiveness from God, what does it create in them? It should create that mercy, that same thing. Knowing that God was willing to to save a wretch like me should create in me a desire to see others experience that same mercy. Somebody once said that Christianity is just one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. (laughs) I like that. That's good. So the fact that we were shown mercy should enable us to show, show great mercy to those who have wronged us, to be quick to forgive others the way we've been forgiven. This is what kingdom people should be like. If God was willing to send his son to the cross to forgive me, who am I to withhold mercy from somebody else? I love this quote by Danny Aiken. It's 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 one, it's a good like memorizer. Um, How much mercy you show is almost certainly the result of how much mercy you know. How much mercy you show is almost certainly the result of how much mercy you know. I think that's true. So blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart is the next one. And again, this one's like, really? Psalm 24, verse 3 is, I think, where this comes from. It says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. That's all that's needed? Great. You know, I'll start walking up the hill then, I guess, right? Clean hands and a pure heart. Got it. But then I read Jeremiah 17.9, and unfortunately I relate to this one way more than I do the psalm that I just read. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know? Rut row. It's like we, we, in the famous words of Scooby-Doo, we got a problem here. Uh, this means we need a heart transplant. That's exactly what it means. We need a new heart. If what it takes to climb the hill of the Lord and stand in his holy presence is a pure heart, I need a new heart. The good news is there is one who can do that for me. There is one man who was pure in heart, Jesus. And he went to the cross and did this thing we we refer to sometimes as the great exchange where he took my sin on himself 
and gave me his righteousness so that I could have a pure heart and clean hands. Isn't that crazy? He can get us up that hill, but only he can. And the cool thing is that once we have this new pure heart, we can walk in newness of life. It changes everything. We can have hearts that desire God, that desire obedience, that desire purity. Isn't that cool? I love that. It's not from us, it's from him. But blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they shall see God. Jesus has made a, a way for us to see God and not, and not, you know, blow up in his presence, you know, see God and still live. That's good news. Blessed are the peacemakers is the next one. Peace seems like an almost impossible thing to strive for, especially in our, you know, current culture and climate. I can't think of a time where I've seen more division, uh, in our, you know, just among people. Even in the church, it, it exists. And it's kind of crazy to see how it's crept even in, into this place. Not this place, but the church. Sorry, I'm, not, I'm not accusing you guys of, you know, stop it. Stop being divided, you know. Um, but it probably is here, too. It's just, it's everywhere. People are walking around filled with anger and angst and and hate for everyone and everything. I mean, I, I know people that you could just see it always seething under the surface. It's, just, it's, it's weird to see. But everybody's just mad as heck, and they don't want to take it anymore. It's just that kind of thing where I see it everywhere I go. And, and it makes peace seem like an impossibility. And it really is apart from the power of God. And he's called us to be peacemakers. Now, this obviously isn't talking about, I don't think this is like world peace, like you are a peacemaker. Go out there and fix it all. That would be probably above our pay grade, I would, I would think. So what does it mean to be a peacemaker? It definitely applies to our relationships within the church. We, we know this from other scriptures. Ephesians tells us that we are to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Romans tells us that we are to pursue peace. If you've ever been in the church for any length of time, you know how necessary this is and how difficult this is because this place is full of sinners. <laughs> you know, <I> don't, <laughs> sorry, but, you know, most of us don't like confrontation. Um, we would rather just bury our heads in the sand and pretend like everything's okay. I don't know if that describes you. Some people look for ways to stir it up and to go attack, you know, but a lot of us just don't want confrontation. So being a peacemaker means that we have to be honest about things that are really happening, not, not just ignore them. It means that you need to be willing to acknowledge the conflict that exists, and that it means that you have to seek to find ways to resolve that conflict in a loving and humble way. This is what peacemakers do. It's definitely a lot easier just to move on down the road to the next church. You know, that's what, that's what a lot of people do. But guess what you'll find waiting there for you? <laughs> More conflict. If for no other reason than, than because you showed up. I mean, that's just, you know, and I don't mean that personally. That, that could apply to any of us. And we take that stuff with us where we go, right? I love that idea. No, I'm going to go find the perfect church. Well, if you ever find it, you're going to ruin it, you know? It's like that, that idea that will, yeah. I very much appreciate when people work to reconcile differences. This does not happen enough. It's what kingdom people are supposed to do. We're going to spend eternity with each other. We might as well get used to the idea and start working on it now, right? What an incredible witness it is to the watching world when they see this taking place, when they see us living in harmony with each other, working out our differences, finding unity and peace within, within our group. Too often what they see instead is us biting each other and devouring each other. 
And it's, it's, it's wrong. Are you a peacemaker in the church? And I, I would just ask you to think about this. The opposite of a peacemaker is someone who creates division and stirs up strife and, and goes around stirring up others as well, riling them up. If you're disgruntled about something, maybe it's legitimate. Seek peace. Find a way to reconcile that. And, and if peace isn't achievable, if you've done all that you can and it's not achievable, maybe it is best to move on. I, I don't like to say that to anybody because I think most of the time we can work these things out. But there are times when we will have to agree to disagree. There are certain things. If I was going to a church where they, they taught that Jesus wasn't God, I would have to part ways with them. I just would. I couldn't go to that church. But there's a lot of secondary issues that we tend to get upset with each other about that aren't worth fighting over. I mean, one of the worst ones to me is end times. We don't know. I mean, it's future. We could all be wrong. Why would we divide over that? You know, let, let's, be, let's be compassionate towards each other. The, the spiritual gifts is another one. We don't know for sure how this all pans out. Be kind to each other. Baptism. Should we baptize an infant? Should we baptize a believer? Should we split over that? I don't think so. If you've done, I don't know. I mean, for, for me, it's, it's no mystery that we've shrunk. In both locations over the last year, we've shrunk. And some of it's because of this stuff. Some of it's because people left because they were upset. But I wish we would have had the opportunity more often. Sometimes we did, but more often to sit down and work through things together and come to a peaceful resolution. But unfortunately, that often doesn't happen. Um, it should happen more often. So being a peacemaker applies to relationships within the church, but I think it applies even more in regards to the sharing of the gospel. And this is where those of us who have made peace with God show others that pathway so that they can also find peace with God. Yeah, I can't tell you what it means to me to have peace with God and to have the peace of God in my life. That was not always the case. I remember that. I remember being without it and then having it. I like having it a whole lot better. There are people out there that have no peace whatsoever right now, no hope. They're in turmoil, and they don't know what in the world's going to happen next, and they're scared, and we have a way for them to find peace, make peace with God. You know, if we've received that and we have that, how can we not share it with everybody else? So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So that's the, the first seven and it's interesting to surmise that a person who exhibits the characteristics described in the first seven Beatitudes shouldn't really be a problem for anybody. Um, they, they, you would think they would be admired, right? applauded. Those are all pretty cool things. But, but Jesus ends this section with the exact opposite of what we would expect. The last Beatitude that he proclaims is this, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. See, when people see us living According to what God desires, it shines an unwanted light on the fact that they are not living that way. Case in point, Jesus, he exemplified all of these characteristics perfectly and they nailed him to a cross. Jesus is the embodiment of these beatitudes. I don't know if you noticed that as we were going through it, but I love that Jesus never asks us to, to, to do things that he wouldn't do himself or to be you know, something that he wasn't willing to be in that way. So, you know, you think about that. Was Jesus poor in spirit? Not because of his sin, but, but you know, think about it. Jesus emptied himself. Second Corinthians 8 says that, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you 
by his poverty might become rich. So Jesus was poor in spirit. We, we already talked about the, the fact that Jesus mourned. And we, there was other times when he, would, he wept over Jerusalem, this idea that sin and, and, and the repercussions of it, he mourned over, not his, but sin in the world. He didn't have sin. We know that. I'm just, I never want to, like, <laughs> this heresy you want to avoid if possible from the pulpit. So Jesus was meek. And we see that over and over and over again. Uh, even, you know, it's funny because Jesus didn't call a lot of attention to different characteristics that he had. But this one, he actually said, you know, I am, I am gentle and lowly in heart. You know, come to me, all you who, he said, I, I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart. He was willing to just admit that one. He was meek. In Philippians 2, we, we see that section that says, have this mind among yourselves, which was also in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. That's something he willingly did, and that models that meekness. Jesus hungered and thirsted for righteousness. We see that over and over again. He was sinless. He always wanted to do the will of the Father, and he wanted to see people repent of their sin and become righteous. He even provided the way for that to happen. He loved righteousness so much. He was merciful. Think about the people that he spent time with and the, the people that he healed and the love that he poured out on people. He was pure in heart. We see that as well. He was a peacemaker. Going to the cross is the ultimate you know, form of peacemaking. He secured our peace there. He's even called the Prince of Peace. And he's the exclusive peacemaker, for what it's worth, between God and man. He was all of these wonderful things, and yet people hated him for it. And so he was persecuted for righteousness' sake in the same way that he's saying that we will be. This is our king. He's our example and our model to follow, and we are kingdom people. You know, I want to be like Jesus. We say that, but then it's like, do you though? Because <laughs> it includes some of these things, right? Now, I want to be like Jesus. The plain expectation is the more we become like Jesus, the more we will be persecuted. And that's kind of the, you know, the, the big idea of the, the Beatitudes here is that he kind of pulls back the curtain to show us what his kingdom is going to look like and what the citizens of his kingdom are going to look like. He's proclaiming that his kingdom has arrived in that sense, and not everyone's happy about that. In fact, they're, they're, they're going to hate it, and they're going to take it out on us. So he goes on further to explain in verse 11, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Because of me, that's what he's saying. If they hate him, they will naturally hate us. And I find it fascinating that up until this point, Jesus has been saying, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. But here he switches it to blessed are you. The moment he starts talking about the persecution that's going to come, he, he, he switches from kind of the, the, the general crowd kind of thing to, to you as an individual. And I, I like to think this is telling us how much he cares about what happens to us individually, personally when we suffer for his namesake. This is personal to him. It matters to him what you go through for his namesake. Isn't that cool? It's kind of like he's saying, look, I've asked my people to be meek and merciful and loving and peaceful, and you want to kick them around because of that? <laughs> I'm paying attention to this, you guys, and there's going to be a day of reckoning. I look forward to that in some ways. So even though we may suffer for being the way Jesus wants us to be, we continue. 
we continue to be meek and humble and merciful and peaceful and righteous because we are reflecting his kingdom to the world around us when we do these things. What an awesome privilege that is. Do you understand what an awesome privilege that is? We get to reflect his kingdom in hopes that somebody else might come. And that's why verse 12 can say, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's funny that he mentions that. Like, you're not alone in this, you guys. The prophets have been persecuted. Think about the apostles as well. You know, it reminds me, you remember the story in, in Acts chapter 5, uh, right after the, the, um, they were beaten for telling other people about Christ. And in verse 41 it says, they left the presence of the council. I mean, bruised, beaten, you know, and they were rejoicing. What? what? That, again, makes no sense. Why would you take a beating and then rejoice? And it says, because they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. <laughs> it's beautiful. Jesus suffered infinitely more for us. And in comparison, we get to suffer just a little for him. And that's the way they looked at it. So if we align with Jesus, we can expect to be treated the way he was, but it matters to him greatly. We don't know what this next week or this next month or this next year holds for us as Christians. It could get tough for us, but we do know what awaits us. Amen? Rejoice and be glad, Christian. Your reward is waiting for you, and it's secure. Nobody can touch it. So until then, let these proclamations that Jesus made give you hope. Because Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the dead, yours is the kingdom of heaven. You will be comforted. You will inherit the earth. You will be satisfied. You will receive mercy. You will see God. You will be called his children, the sons of God. Amazing, isn't it? Yeah. Father, thank you so much for this section of scripture that we have the privilege of reading and, and looking at and just understanding what Jesus has accomplished for us. Thank you that you have allowed us to become sons and daughters, that we get to be adopted by you and become kingdom people. Help us to reflect that now. Help us to reflect these beatitudes, these blessings that you've given us to the people around us, that they might know you as well. And we ask that in Jesus' name.